welcome to Two Boomer Women. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. I've been talking with Boomer women for almost a decade now. (laughs) Well, I guess I've been talking to Boomer women all my adult life. Uh, Reinventing myself several times along the way, though, but always focused on us, Boomer women. With this incarnation of Two Boomer Women, I'll be interviewing other women who have a message of interest for our demographic. If you want to hear about or learn about something specific, let me know and I'll find someone who understands us to talk about it. There's a contact page at twoboomerwomen.com. If you want to be a guest on Two Boomer Women, bring it on. There's an application form at the website, too. Finally, this show is all about conversation. We women know its value. We know how to do it and we must perpetuate the art form. So, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to the Two Boomer Women Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Listeners, if you're anything like me, you're going to be learning a lot today. My guest is a registered dietitian with 35 years experience. She's going to talk to us about ovarian cancer, keto diets, fasting, and probably a few other things as well. I have little to no experience with any of those, so I'm going to jump right in and let Martha share her story and her journey. Martha Tettenborn, welcome to the Two Boomer Women podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Agnes. Great to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. Love learning things. Everyone knows that I come to these conversations with notes. Uh, Today, I seem to have more questions than conversation, so I hope you'll be patient with me. And I'm going to try to stay somewhat sort of chronological, uh, but it's your journey, so you take us where you will. You've been a registered dietitian in Canada for 35 years. Tell us about that career. Yeah, yeah. I I graduated from university uh, in 1984, so I went to school right at the beginning of the whole low-fat movement. Uh, The McGovern Commission um, in the U.S. did a statement that said that basically the entire world should be on low fat, all ages, everything from age two up sort of thing. Those were the the guidelines for Americans. And then, of course, most of the Western world adopted that. And it was all considered cutting edge science at the time. So that's how I practiced for most of my career. I did a few years in hospital. Then I did some uh, private practice. I've done home care. And then I got into long-term care, gerontology, and that's where I've been for probably the last 20 plus years. But in the last 10 years or so, I have discovered that uh, what I learned was probably pretty much diametrically wrong. And so I've gone off on this tangent into uh, low-carbohydrate diets and uh, more ancestral sort of diets using more whole foods and less processed foods. And I decided a few years ago, about 2015, to put my money where my mouth was. And I got certified as a primal health coach. So that was more in-depth, low-carbohydrate sort of ancestral health knowledge. And so I tried to, I still do long-term care as my day job, but I started a private practice in my community doing chronic disease prevention and healthy, awesome aging and that kind of stuff using low carbohydrate principles. I got absolutely no buy-in from my local doctors. So that did not go terribly well. And then about three, four years ago, um, I discovered that I had cancer. And so I put the private practice on hold and went off on a new tangent, discovering what I could about nutrition and its impact on cancer, because it's not something that as dietitians, we really spend much time or energy on. 
Hmm. We have a lot of parallels because I had a wellness business back oh, 80s into the 90s. And I got extremely healthy with fitness, low fat, I'll, I'll say complex carbohydrates, so, so closer to natural. So that's one of the reasons I was really interested to hear uh, about what you're doing. Um, and then I also ended up in a career in elder care. So, um, so this is going to be interesting. <laughs> okay. So you were diagnosed with stage one ovarian cancer. When you messaged me, you said that ovarian cancer strikes mostly postmenopausal women, aka boomers, mm-hmm. and that it's known as the cancer that whispers. Yes. What does, what does that is. mean? Can you tell us more? Well, if you think about it, your ovaries are probably the most precious load that a body carries because that is reproduction and evolution is all about reproduction. So the eggs are buried so deep inside us and the ovaries, of course, are the organ that produces the eggs that uh, when we run into problems with that, it's it's very deep inside us and we don't have any sort of obvious outside signals such as lumps or bumps or vaginal bleeding or you know things like that 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 signal a problem or a growth for other kinds of cancer and so they they call ovarian cancer the cancer that whispers because the symptoms tend to be very non-specific and sometimes the kind of thing that women in particular of course women are the only ones with ovaries <laughs> uh, women will will just figure it's their lot in life to be this little bit uncomfortable or whatever. And, and they don't put themselves first in terms of taking care of themselves. And so they just kind of brush off things like, you know, abdominal distension or bloating, or maybe some constipation or a little bit of lower back pain, or maybe, you know, early satiety. These are some of the symptoms that can be indicative of ovarian cancer, but they're, they're so nonspecific. You know, there's no, like, if, if you start bleeding when you're 65, vaginally, you got a problem and you need to go get that investigated. But it doesn't tend to work that way with ovarian cancer. So what happens is that somewhere upwards of 75% of women who are diagnosed with ovarian cancer will be diagnosed at stage three or four, which is pretty advanced, which means that it's metastasized. And so Treatment is more difficult, uh, remission is more difficult, cure is really more difficult. And it becomes becomes a matter of kind of managing it as opposed to curing it, you know, if that can happen. And so ovarian cancer is considered one of the more deadly cancers for women. That's the that's kind of what it means by the the cancer that whispers. I certainly didn't know anything until boom, there it was. Yeah. So and I think, too, just following up on what you said is that as women, you know, you've just spent decades with probably discomfort and low back pain and abdominal pain, like all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I'm sure so many women just say, oh, jeepers, this was supposed to end with menopause. Um, and, and they don't follow up on it. I can really see. No, see no. And we're so used to not looking after ourselves because women look after everybody else. Look after yeah. your, your spouses and your kids and your elderly parents and, you know, all of your volunteering and maybe your church and, you know, and a job. And so we just don't take care of ourselves. That That's becoming a really common thread with so many of my guests is that women, like, 
And especially now as boomers, like hopefully a lot of that is behind us. You know, our parents for, for many of us are gone. Uh, our children are independent. We're no longer doing the nine to five or many of us aren't doing the nine to five. So put yourself on the front burner. Take care of hmm. yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And listen to your body. If it's starting to send you signals, pay some attention to it. Don't just write it off as, oh, I feel bloated today. You know, or I felt bloated for the last couple of weeks. It's like, is there any particular reason, you know, like do a little self-investigation and, and, you know, if, if your husband or or your child or your daughter, someone came to you and said, mom, I have felt horrible for the last three weeks. I've got low back pain and I'm bloated. You would be the one going, think you should maybe get that looked at, but we don't do it for ourselves. We just write it off. And I think we need to advocate. Uh, you and I are both in Canada. We've got real problems with our, our health system up here right now with the lack of doctors. And I think it's really easy, again, to say, okay, I don't have a doctor. Uh, I'm not going to sit in a clinic for five hours. Uh, this will pass. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah. you've really got to advocate for yourself. And in the last two years, people haven't even wanted to go near doctors. You know, well, we couldn't. A lot of our, our medicine was virtual and you know, and people were afraid to go sit in a waiting room anywhere and that kind of stuff. So there's, they're saying there's going to probably be a huge wave of late stage, you know, previously undiagnosed cancers and and other chronic diseases that are going to come forward now that we're nearing the end of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. That's a whole nother subject. My goodness. Okay. Like everything else on earth, I take it cancer cells need fuel to grow. Can you explain that cancer metabolism? How do they fuel themselves? Yeah, really differently than regular cells, it turns out. And nobody really knew this until just recently. It was actually discovered like 100 years ago. Um, A lot of research was done, particularly in Germany and Europe and in between the world wars. In fact, there was a researcher back then who won a Nobel Prize for describing the altered metabolism of cancer cells. Unfortunately, World War II happened. Germany lost. The man who was doing the research was Jewish. (laughs) part Jewish. He was quite a character. And the science kind of got lost. Anything that was published in German really didn't wasn't respected in the English speaking world after the war. And then shortly after that, Watson and Crick discovered the double helix of DNA, they described DNA. And once they could see DNA, they realized that in cancer cells, DNA was damaged. And that just sort of metabolism just ended up on the dust heap of history and the entire machinery of cancer sort of moved towards genetics. And that's where it's been ever since really, Um, you know, the last 70 years or so has been all about genetics. So it's only in the last 20 years or so that scientists have started going back and looking at how cancer cells metabolize their energy. And it started with a a researcher who described what he calls the hallmarks of cancer. So these are the the characteristics of cancer that make it different than other cells. And number one is that cancer has uncontrolled growth and it has no off switch. It doesn't have a way to downregulate its growth. It's hungry all the time. It's being pressured to grow and divide all the time. And to do that, cancer cells need fuel, they need building materials, they need blood supply, and, uh, and how they make energy from their fuel is different than how healthy cells do. So they produce their energy in a very kind of ancient 
process that takes place in the fluid of the cell, the cytoplasm of the cell. And it's a process that's actually a fermentation process. So they take glucose, which is sugar that comes from your blood, and they break it down into lactic acid and hydrogen gas. So they make a, a chemical break. This causes acid, which then has to be dealt with. And it's, it's a very rapid process, but it's not a particularly efficient process. Healthy cells use a, an oxidative respiration. So they use a, a process that requires oxygen and that it takes place inside a little organelle inside your cells called mitochondria. And in there, a glucose molecule or a fatty acid or a ketone body can go into that chemical process and get broken down into energy in a very efficient and a very clean burning way. Because when you get to the end of that process, all you produce is carbon dioxide and water. And of course, we breathe out carbon dioxide and water becomes part of our fluid in our, our bodies. So to do that, with one glucose molecule, that chemical cycle in your mitochondria can make 36 ATPs or 36 little units of energy. The cytoplasmic respiration process, the one that the cancer cells is using, they use one glucose molecule and they make two ATPs. So much less efficient, but much quicker. And when you look under an electron microscope, often the mitochondria in cancer cells is actually like physically damaged. It's not work. You, you can see structurally that it's not working the way it's supposed to. So what that means in you know, real life is that cancer cells are always hungry and they're always hungry for glucose, blood sugar, glucose, that simple molecule is really the only one that can be dealt with through cytoplasmic fermentation. They can't burn fatty acids. Well, they can't burn ketones. Well, they need sugar. They're looking for sugar all the time. And they're looking for the growth factors that allow sugar to be absorbed into the cell like insulin and another one called insulin like growth factor. So, you know, when I kind of, I didn't know about any of this. I didn't know. That's what blows my mind is that none of this was even knowledge when I was in university or really since, I mean, all dietitians really knew about cancer was help people to not lose weight despite the, the cancer and despite the treatment effects right? Because the, you know, cancer treatment makes you feel awful. So helping people to not lose weight, and particularly not to get into what's called cancer cachexia, which is that muscle wasting that super skinny, you know, skeletal sort of weight loss that you see with advanced diseases, not just cancer, but advanced diseases, which isn't, by the way, an entirely calorie based thing. It's not just you didn't eat enough. And so you lost weight. It's, it's a different disease process and it's still being investigated. What it really is it has a lot to do with inflammation, I think, but that was all we, we knew. We didn't know anything about actually affecting cancer's growth through um, its metabolism because we didn't know that it had a different metabolism. So when I was diagnosed, I started looking because I wasn't about to just sit back and accept the status quo. I mean, I didn't do that in the rest of my life with my low carb practice and everything. So why would I do it now? Right. And that's when I discovered that there was this whole field of cancer metabolism. And I was just gobsmacked that 
nobody seemed to know this stuff. It's really interesting because for a while I was a volunteer at hospice. And, you know, as people are entering those final stages, their, their families are begging them to eat. And, and I remember the staff saying, if, if, if they're done eating, you're just feeding the cancer. And uh, so that's probably around like that so, sort of whole process of, mm-hmm. you know, like they and the body was giving up, but by pushing in the pudding or whatever it was, that soft stuff, you were just feeding the cancer cells. So, And most of the stuff used at that stage, of course, is full of sugar. I mean, yeah. that, that is end stage. And you get to a point where if something is going to feed your soul and you want it, fine, have it. Yeah. Right. But, you know, I always say what dietary interventions you make depend on what your goals are. And if the goal is to, you know, to slow down cancer or to heal cancer like this, I'm not talking about healing cancer. Um, I I don't make any claims that way, but to, um, you know, prevent cancer recurrence or to deal in my case with the side effects of cancer treatment, then yeah, you, you, you can use fairly strict interventions and, you know, it's like anything, it's all about your, your mindset and your paradigm and where you're coming from, you know, abstinence or whatever can be easy if you have the right mindset. Right. So I sort of put together a Coles notes version. Um, You're a smart woman, you're proactive, you do the research, you decide on a ketogenic diet, and to fast, I've got this off your website, and to fast during each chemo period. Can you expand on that decision? And sort of what made it the obvious set of protocols for a registered dietitian of all people? And what did it mean when it came to your food intake? Well, I was already eating a low carb diet. I wasn't ketogenic most of the time. I was just kind of low carb. And whole foods, kind of ancestral foods, animal products, heavy animal products, uh, lots of vegetables. I didn't use a lot of, you know, keto processed foods. I was never into the bars and the shakes and the artificial sweeteners and stuff like that. But when I went looking and realized that by keeping my blood sugar really low and therefore keeping my insulin levels really low, that I could actually starve the cancer. I could stress out the cancer because I'm not giving it what it wants. So I decided that that was how I was going to approach making sure the cancer didn't get a good foothold. It wasn't a a hospitable environment for it to grow. Now, can I I interject for just a second? A keto diet, I take it that's higher fat. And is it protein then if you're not getting the carbs? No, it's a higher fat, moderate protein, low carbohydrate diet. Okay. So a keto diet is basically just a diet that puts your body into the metabolic state of ketosis. That's really all it means. It could be anything because as long as you keep the carbohydrates low enough that your body senses that it's low. And so your, your liver starts to make these alternate fuels out of fatty acid materials and sometimes out of protein, but the body isn't stupid. It's not going to break down protein if it doesn't have to, but ketones are an alternate fuel that is water soluble. That's the big difference between them and fatty acids. Fatty acids are fat soluble. The blood is a water-based system. Blood sugar, glucose, dissolves in in water. Ketones dissolve in water. Ketones are very small molecules. They can cross the blood-brain barrier, and they are an excellent fuel for the brain. 
And they're an excellent fuel for muscles. Like we we're designed to run on ketones. Babies are born in ketosis. They spend a lot of their young life in ketosis because they're eating a high fat diet, right? Breast milk. And, you know, anytime that our ancestors went a period of time without eating because they weren't lucky enough in their hunt or whatever, they were, they would switch into ketosis. And so it's a natural state for us. It's not a, there's nothing dangerous about it. So I made the decision that I was going to try and stay in ketosis. And I do that through a low carb diet. But then a keto keto diet can be, it can be animal based, it can be all carnivore, it can be a wide variety of foods, it can include processed foods, it can be vegetarian, though that's tougher, can even be vegan, though that's super tough. That was one of my Um, questions for later. (laughs) Yeah. Or it can be nothing. Fasting is the fastest way to get into ketosis. So having nothing is, is often a really great way to do it as well. So yeah, so I decided that I was going to go and stay in ketosis, which makes keeps my blood sugar low, keeps my insulin low, fuels my healthy cells does not fuel the cancer cells. So that's why ketosis and I stayed in strict um, ketosis for the entire five months that I was doing chemotherapy. The rest of the time I live in a more moderate low carbs or lifestyle. So what's the correlation between the ketosis and what's happening to the body during chemo? Okay, this is really interesting, because healthy cells operate on a variety of different fuels. But healthy cells have the ability to downregulate their metabolism to slow down when the fuel is scarce. Okay, and again, that goes back to, you know, two and a half million years of evolution, we did not have grocery stores on the savanna. Right? So we are very capable of going long periods without eating. And one of the things that our healthy cells will do is they will just downregulate all the major growth modes and go into sort of a housekeeping or a house cleaning sort of mode called autophagy, where even within your own cells, there's damaged molecules and, you know, bum proteins and stuff, and they will break those down and use them for fuel. So it's almost like a house cleaning type process. But they go into a very quiescent sort of mode until digestion kicks up again because you put more food in and then they will start up again. The big difference with cancer cells is that they do not have the ability to do that. They have no off switch. That's one of those hallmarks. And so cancer is hungry all the time. So if you can prevent it from having fuel, you can really stress the cancer cells. and. By stressing them, it makes them more vulnerable to the treatment that you then apply to them. Got it. Okay. One of the researchers, Dr. Thomas Seyfried, he calls it his press pulse theory. So you put pressure on the cells by having really kind of a low um, fuel supply, which stresses out the cancer cells, particularly low glucose. And, uh, And then you pulse them, you hit them with something, whether it's chemo or radiation or hyperbaric oxygen or high dose vitamin C or mistletoe, there's a lot of different traditional and um, alternative, quote unquote, um, treatments that can be used. So one of the things, particularly in my case, it was chemotherapy that I was dealing with. Chemotherapy is a pretty blunt weapon. It's basically a chemical poison. They are all poisons that are designed to kill the cancer cells before it kills the patient. 
right? So the cancer cells can't turn themselves off. And the chemo is basically targeted at these metabolic processes of growth and division. So different drugs have hit, hit it in different places along that continuum. But basically, in an adult human, we don't have a lot of areas in our body that are still actively growing. If you think about it, our hair follicles are constantly growing and producing new material. Our bone marrow is constantly producing new cells for our blood, red blood cells, white blood cells, our immune system cells, our platelets, they all come out of the bone marrow. So that's an area of active growth for adults. And then our digestive tract is coated with cells right from top to bottom that are constantly turning over and producing new cells and producing, you know, chemicals. So that's a growth area as well. And when you look at the the side effects of chemotherapy, that's exactly where you get hit. You get hit in the hair loss, you get hit in the, the blood components, and you get GI symptoms. And of course, nerve, you can get nerve damage, you can get muscle aches and joint aches and all those sorts of things as well. But the fasting shuts down a lot of the growth processes in healthy cells. That's what's so cool about it, is that it puts your cells into what I call stealth mode. So when you put the chemo in, it doesn't find your healthy cells to the same extent, it just sort of sails right over them and heads for the cancer cells. Because they're the ones that are like looking like active metabolism, right? Therefore, you don't get the side effects. Because the side effects are basically the chemo cells, the chemo drugs doing what they're supposed to do, which is to knock down growth. So you don't get, I mean, I lost all my hair. That's, you know, that kind of went without saying. My, My blood values went down, but every treatment, they would rebound back up to normal without any extra medications to help that that along or anything. I didn't need any immune boosters or anything. Every time my blood values would come up enough that I could then get the next treatment. And in terms of GI, which is a lot of what makes people really miserable is mouth sores and nausea, vomiting, constipation, diarrhea, you know, pain in your belly, gastritis, that kind of stuff. Almost zero. My experience was stunning, really, that I had so little response in terms of side effects to the chemo. Wow. I keep on looking off because in my mind, I'm trying to join the dots and you're doing such a great job of, (laughs) it's almost like I have the next question written on my forehead because I don't need to ask it. So thank you for that. Just to go back, I said I was going to go back to this. What about vegetarians and vegans? I mean, I I have both in my life. How how do they deal with keto or or with uh, a keto diet? It's, um, it's harder. A vegetarian, most vegetable protein sources are associated with carbohydrates. That's how nature makes them. So things like seeds and grains that are the, pl- the plants, um, reproductive materials have protein that they're, they're the best source of protein in the in a vegetarian diet. But that also comes with carbohydrates attached, right? Right. And so to go really low carb on a keto diet is quite difficult. You end up using things like chia or quinoa. And even then it's really hard to get enough. But for me, I think the biggest issue um, is not just carbohydrates. It's also the fats. Okay. We as a human species have been eating meat 
other animals since the dawn of time. And we always um, hunted as, as ancestral humans hunted bigger game. We became the primates that, you know, stood up and hunted basically. And the fat that we get from other animals is instrumental in our development as humans. The brain basically is made of fat and we have to have the right kind of fat for brain development to become the most successful species on the planet, which we have, right. And, um, you know, to evolve with this enormous, hugely metabolically expensive brain, we had to have animal foods and we had to have animal fats. So uh, for a vegetarian, it's really hard to get those moderate and short chain saturated fats because they are mainly in animals. So particularly around children, I, I have concerns about, you know, vegetarian, not vegetarian if you, so much if you're using dairy products and eggs, but for, for vegans, it's really, really hard to get the nutrients that on an ancestral basis, we were evolved to eat and to do well on. I don't want this to sound disrespectful. Um, are you an, an, are you an anomaly or is this a line of research and results that hasn't reached the mainstream yet? You mean in terms of evolution? Well, no, in terms of you taking on this keto diet, uh, fasting, getting rid of, I take it you're here. You must've had success. (laughs) (laughs) Three years, Um, uh, three years this week since my last chemo. And you certainly look fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So I take it you're, you're not the only person in the world that's ever done this and with great success. No, when I started looking in 2018, there wasn't a lot of people yet who were talking about it generally, like the research was being done. There was a lot, you know, there's nobody who's going to sort of step forward and go, this is our, you know, national recommendation because the research isn't there yet. The other thing is that this is research on a dietary intervention. I mean, even finding the money to do this kind of research is really hard because most research is, is, you know, drug company research and they want a payoff at the end. So there's, there's just no money for this kind of stuff. There's, there's no, there's no way to make a a living at telling people to eat low fat or low carb. So, um, so that's a problem. But in the last couple of years, this has blown wide open, which is, I find fascinating. Dr. Jason Fung in Toronto Um, who is a big proponent of intermittent fasting has written a number of books, but his latest book is called the cancer code. And he looks at what cancer is and how it's different than healthy cells. Fascinating book. But he was one that really kind of blew the lid off of this idea that cancer has a metabolism and that the metabolism is different and that it can be impacted by what we choose to do nutritionally. His book, I knew a year ahead of time that he was writing a book on cancer because I had run into his partner at a conference. It turns out his book was published nine days before mine. (laughs) It was was rather copacetic, actually, that I could just kind of ride his shirt tail. But since then, there's been a number of of, um, books and a number of researchers who are, you know, much more aware of cancer and the use of the keto diet 
and fasting in cancer treatment. In fact, I am in two weeks, I am going to the Metabolic Health Summit, which is a large scientific conference in uh, California, using low carbon ancestral health sort of principles. And one whole half day of that conference is devoted to cancer. And that wouldn't have been a few years ago. You know, we talk a lot about diabetes and cardiovascular disease and um, sports performance and things like that. But but this time around, there's going to be a whole half day devoted to uh, to cancer. So it is definitely much more mainstream than it was. But it's still, there's a big world out there and a lot of people aren't getting it yet. <laughs> well, I was just going to say too, and it's been a long time coming because I mean, cancer is rampant now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So I did have a question here, which I think you've answered or made quite clear what the answer is, just in terms of it works on any kind of cancer. Um, no, actually there most cancers, probably 90%. There are a few cancers where they're not sure yet how well it works. Some, some kinds of kidney cancer and possibly um, melanoma, I think it is. But that would be something that, you know, it's not totally across the board that being in ketosis and in a really high fat diet is like the perfect solution for everything because it's, it's a complex disease. But the majority of cancer uses this altered metabolism and therefore can respond to a lower carb diet. And, you know, I I say to everybody, no matter what, cleaning up your diet, like getting rid of the ultra processed crap and the industrial seed oils and the glyphosate soaked GMO grains and the, you know, the, the foods that have been reconstructed from deconstructed materials like things that are built with cornstarch and high fructose corn syrup and soya protein. And, you know, and they, they kind of look like food, but they're not food. You know, what Michael Pollan calls food like substances, <laughs> um, you know, getting that crap out of your diet is and going to more whole foods, no matter what is going to benefit anybody. When I was trying to teach my children to eat healthy when they were young, of course, kids like the hot dogs, right? And so when you teach them that beef comes from a cow and pork comes from a pig and stuff like that, I said that hot dogs came from monster meat (laughs) and they didn't want to eat them anymore. (laughs) You know, I'm married to a German who loves his wieners. Oh, (laughs) I just try and buy really good quality wieners. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay. How about, I mean, we're boomers. A lot of people have diabetes, whether it's type one, type two, heart disease by this age. Does that diet affect any of those other health issues that a person all in a good way all in a good way every one of them they are putting people into full-blown diabetic remission using a ketogenic diet it is awe-inspiring off of all medications you know perfect blood values and they're doing it with keto diet like just diet it's amazing there's an organization in the states called virta health b-i-r-t-a they do um, they do intensive coaching on keto diets and they deep prescribe like they get people off their drugs all the time. In Canada, Dr. Fung and his partner Megan Ramos run an organization called the Fasting Method, using intermittent fasting and low carb diets when you're not fasting. And they they are taking people off of insulin within weeks. People who've been on insulin for years can come off within weeks. It's it's such a powerful thing that you kind of have to say, don't try this at home. You know, like if you're on a medication, particularly if you're on a medication for blood sugar or for blood pressure, 
you should be talking to your doctor, um, letting them know that you want to try this approach and they need to be able to support you in de-prescribing or taking off your medications because you can run into trouble with your blood sugars going too low or your blood pressure going too low simply because this stuff's so powerful. You've just said a word that reminded me. I didn't ask you earlier. What do you define as fasting? Fasting is, it's got a whole bunch of definitions, but basically we have been told that, you know, we're supposed to eat three meals a day and snacks in between meals and, you know, that grazing is okay and all that kind of stuff that when you look back at our ancestors, like millions of years ago, but even a hundred years ago, even 50 years ago, both boomers grew up with a breakfast, a lunch, a supper. And if you came home hungry after school, your mother would say, don't eat, you're going to spoil your dinner. Or here's an apple, that's all you get until you come home for supper, right? Maybe a snack before bed. But you know, as like, our generation didn't grow up with all the the snacking that the constant pseudo foods that kids are given nowadays, you know, the bars and the the drinks with sugar in them and stuff. And so fasting is any kind of time when you're not eating, basically. So you know, we should be able to go four to five to six hours in between meals. And a meal should be big enough that you are satiated when you're done. And that means it should have enough fat in it to provide you with satiation. It should have enough protein in it that you're satiated. If it has a ton of carbohydrates in it, it's going to bump up your blood sugar after a meal, which will bump up your insulin, which then drops your blood sugar. And two hours later, you're hungry again. So that's where the protein and fat rich meals give you the satiety and not the blood sugar surge that you can then go hours without eating right? So time restricted eating is kind of a term for taking what you do eat and putting it into a shorter time period so that you have periods during the day when your digestive system is resting, and you're, you're not actively metabolizing freshly eaten food. And if you can eat low carb for a while and get yourself what's called metabolically flexible, meaning that you have the ability to burn fatty acids, and the ability to burn glucose, you know, it, it's not a big deal to go hours without eating. It's not a big deal to skip a meal if you're busy doing something else. And when you do eat, you eat to satiety. I needed to ask that question because so often when people talk about fasting, they think they've got to go like 24 hours or 48 hours with maybe a bit of water and that's it. And that, that becomes really hard to do. But yeah. it's just a matter of having a reasonable breakfast maybe five hours later, having a reasonable lunch, five hours later, having a reasonable dinner that I mean, that's where you start. For people who are actively type two diabetic, insulin resistant, that kind of thing, often going a longer period, like not having breakfast, and waiting until 10 o'clock in the morning to have your first meal or waiting until noon to have your first meal. If you can eat supper, and then go until noon the next day, that's like a 16 to 18 hour fast. You've slept through the first half of it, which is easy, right? And but yeah, so even that is like an 18 hour fast. And then you eat your calories in about a six hour window. So you have a lunch, and then about five hours later, you have a dinner, and then you quit eating again until lunch the next day. That's an intermittent fast, right? If you want to get into some more of the health promoting 
you know, more advanced fasting, then you go 24 hours. So you, you quit eating supper one night and you eat supper the next night. And in between, it doesn't have to be just water. It could be a cup of black coffee in the morning with maybe just like a teaspoon or two of cream in it. It, you know, I'm, I'm fasting with a thermos of tea at the moment and I will eat supper when we're done our interview, because it's dinner time in my part of the world. And uh, yeah, but for, for the chemo fasting protocol that I developed when I was going through chemotherapy, I fasted for 72 hours. So that's three days. And the reason for that is that I wanted to downregulate those healthy cells and put them into that quiet mode so that when they shot chemo into me, they were all quiet and the chemo bypassed them. Right. And then for 24 hours after my chemo, I stayed fasted so that they stayed quiet and the chemo worked on the cancer cells, but not on my body's healthy cells. And so I would stop eating on a Tuesday night after supper. I would fast all through Wednesday. I would have my chemo on Thursday and I would fast until supper time on Friday. So that was the 72 hours. I would use coffee, black coffee, black or herbal tea, uh, bubbly water. And on usually the day before chemo, I would have a couple of cups of bone broth because they were a great way to get salt in. But also they were warm. Like It was winter. So, I mean, everything had to be warm in my world. But not only that, it's that I felt so good in between chemo treatments that I had a great appetite. So Wednesday, I'd like that day in between before chemo, I'd be hungry and I'd need something just to, you know, kind of help me get through the day. Right. And I was, I was working, I was still working through um, chemo. So I would be at work and it would be nice to have a cup, you know, a thermos full of bone broth that I could kind of call my hot lunch. So that worked really well for me. And, and what happened at chemo was entirely what was not expected, which is that I had, I had almost no nausea. I had zero vomiting, six chemo treatments, never once threw up. I never missed a meal unless I was fasting. In fact, I never missed making a meal that in my house, that's my job. I like it. I'm in control. You know, sometimes I would just get up and make bacon and eggs for supper and go back to bed, but I never missed making the meals. And I would have about four days of kind of low energy. And then my energy would start coming back up. And I was like, fine for two and a half weeks until the next treatment. And, you know, that was totally not what was expected with the kind of chemo that I was taking. And I had minimal to no muscle aches. I never got into any sort of peripheral neuropathy, like the nerve damage. And I was terrified of the nerve damage, like in my fingers and toes and stuff that never happened. So I... I was an N equals one experiment and I refused to be my own control subject by actually eating my way through one of my chemo treatments. I just, I said, I, why would I put myself through that? So I fasted through all six and I, I don't regret it for an instant. It was the most amazing thing. And I want to tell other people about it so they can do it too. Is there any research around a person taking on this sort of a diet, a keto diet, being less likely to get cancer? There's not, I don't know, there's research at this point, other than epidemiological type research, which isn't always the best. But what they're what they are finding is that there are things that you can do 
um, in terms of nutrition that will impact on the level of chronic inflammation in your body. And the chronic inflammatory processes in your body are what leads to most of the diseases of civilization, as we call them, which is the cardiovascular disease, the type two diabetes, the cancer, the neurological deterioration with age, the Alzheimer's and that kind of stuff, cognitive decline, all of those things seem to be related to chronic inflammation. And, and a lot of that seems to be related to insulin resistance, which then goes back to these, you know, high carb diets, and the use of these industrial seed oils, the the corn, canola, soy oils that have been created in factories using all kinds of chemicals. And they come from GMO grains to start with, um, which means that they've got, you know, chemical pesticides and stuff sprayed on them. So if you can cut that stuff out of your diet, and the sugar, which is also very inflammatory, you can you can really reduce the inflammation in your body, which then protects you against all of those things, because they they all seem to be related, they all kind of go back to this root cause, which is this inflammation in your body. Hmm. Okay, (laughs) positive thinking, Uh, you know, you were, were you able to remain positive throughout all this? It sounds like you were just because you really felt in control. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. So when I when I was trying to come up with a title for my book, I wanted to express that spirit and attitude was a huge part of getting through cancer. And I needed to find a way to say that, that, that didn't involve being a victim of cancer, because I refused to be a victim. And that didn't involve doing battle with cancer, because I refused to be in a, a fight right? And so that's why my book is called, you know, hacking chemo, using ketogenic diet, therapeutic fasting, and a kick ass attitude to power through cancer. And to power through not to fight cancer, like we're getting through cancer, it's a process, we're going to get through and come out the other end. And we're going to do it with a kick ass, take control, be empowered, positive attitude. And that's what I was trying to get across with those words. So yes, it mattered to me very much that I was that I was able to to go through this process and not feel victimized and to not feel that I was a warrior. I didn't I didn't want that image at all. It's extremely stressful to be battle ready all the time. It's just, you know, you're flooding your body with stress hormones. And so I decided I was very early on that I was going to approach this from a, um, a an attitude of gratitude and self love, loving my body. I mean, when when I was diagnosed, I was 58 years old, I was as healthy as a horse, I took zero medication, nothing ached, I had all the energy I needed for anything I wanted to do. And getting cancer felt like a kick in the teeth, especially because my professional persona was all about being healthy and healthy aging and all that stuff, right? And it's like, who, me? (laughs) You know? (laughs) So I needed to find a way to stay. I've always been a glass half full person. I've always been positive, find the silver lining. But I needed to find that in this context. And one of the things that really helped me with that was to realize that cancer 
is not a foreign invader. And and that was really because people, oh, I've been invaded by cancer. It's growing. It's taking over, you know. Cancer is is your own cells. It's you, right? It's misguided and it's gone off in the wrong direction and it's not very well controlled at the moment, but it's still you. It's not something else. And so as part of me, I had to love it as, as part of myself, right? So I, I took the Marie Kondo approach, I call it, to, uh, to my cancer. You know, Marie Kondo, the little cleaning up guru, the little Japanese lady, she says in, in her book and her material, she says, if something in your life doesn't spark joy, thank it for its role in your life and let it go. And that's kind of how I thought about my cancer. It, it, it came out of the blue. It sent me off in a whole new direction in my life. It gave me an experience that, not that I'd want to repeat it. I do not want to repeat it. But it gave me this, this experience of being a patient, being on the other side, finding this whole new passion for the power of nutrition. I mean, you can get pretty jaded after, you know, 35 years and not feeling like you're actually doing well for people. The low carb direction I'd taken in the last few years had helped with that. But my God, like now I've got, I've got a real soapbox to climb onto. And I can really honestly help people get through cancer treatment, feeling good. And you can get through this and come out the other end and be as well or or more well than you were when you went into the process. So that, you know, thank you for that you know, you can go now. Like, I, I got the I got the message. Thanks. <laughs> I love that. And I'm thinking you better stay on that soapbox. Because if Marie Kondo hears this relationship, you know, the correlation, then she might just get on the, the bandwagon first. <laughs> you know, I admitted right at the beginning, I was coming in completely out of my depth. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you think midlife, uh, especially postmenopausal women should know? I really think that postmenopausal women need to love their bodies and love themselves enough to be aware of the changes and take care of yourself. And, you know, we, we've spent our lives giving to others. I mean that, you know, we create life, we give life, we support other people, but back when I started in the menopause, which is a good 12 years ago now, I read, Christiana Northrop's book about the wisdom of menopause. And one of the things she said is, you you know, that the image of the the maiden and then the mother and then the, the crone, they called it, or the, you know, the old, the wise woman. And it's like, you get to a point in your life where you're just not going to accept crap anymore. And it's like, yeah, I get that. Okay. I totally get that now. You, You decide what's important and you make yourself important. Like, I spent an entire lifetime, you know, wrestling with the same 20 extra pounds that society said was too much for my body to be perfect or whatever. And it's like, what was I thinking? Why did I spend so much energy on hating the fact that I have a jiggly lower belly as opposed to, you know, just reveling in the fact that I have a body that let me hike to Machu Picchu five years ago you gotta, you gotta give yourself lots and lots of love. And it's, it can be hard for women of our generation, but it's really important. 
Well, I'm beating the same drum as you. So <laughs> from, awesome. I was going to say from coast to coast, you're not, you're not quite coast to coast, but that's okay. Coast to middle anyways. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Okay. You're a cancer doula. Tell our listeners what you do. Yeah. So I wanted to be able to help people in as many ways as I could. So I started a blog and then the blog led to the book and you know, the podcasting supports the book, but it also, I mean, it's all about getting the message out that there are these interventions that you can try for yourself that you can use. And one of the things that I wanted to be able to do was to help people on a one-to-one basis if they require it, or if they have complicating health factors that make it harder. As a registered dietitian, I have a license provided by the College of Dietitians in my province. And so I cannot practice outside of my province. There, there's In Canada, there's some um, reciprocal agreements with some provinces, but not all of them. And I can't practice in the U.S. As a, as a dietitian doing medical nutritional therapy. So the Cancer Doula came about as an idea of a way to provide coaching and education on a one-to-one basis for people who want that kind of support. A doula is a person who helps somebody going through a process. So if you think of a birth doula, the birth doula doesn't catch the baby. They're not the midwife. They are there to support the mother. They're an advocate. They're a support. They're a helper. They're knowledgeable. And that that image of a doula really struck home with me that that's really what I wanted to be for people is somebody who helps you through the process. I'm not providing the process. I'm providing you support. I've been there. I have the knowledge background of a 30 year veteran dietitian, you know, so I can provide those things, but in a a coaching or an educational capacity. So, uh, so yeah, so on my website, there's a page that says work with me and it has information about the cancer doula options. But you know, everything that people need to get started is on the blog for free. Uh, The fasting, chemo fasting protocol is the first blog post I ever wrote. And if someone goes to my website and puts their email in, they can download like a one pager that is the chemo fasting protocol. The book has recipes. It has my story. It has some of the science and stuff. It has a list of references. But a lot of that stuff's on the the website too, if people, you know, don't want to buy the book or can't buy the book. Did I see a course as well? I have a course with Udeme, but it's it's unpublished at the moment. If you don't update it enough, they take it down. So yes, at the moment it's unpublished. I need to create some new content for it to um, freshen it up and then they will publish it again. But at the moment, I don't. Okay. So where do we find you online? Um, my website is just my name, marthatettenborn.com. And there, there the landing page is the blog and and then there's a, a page for linking to the book and all the book links right from the, the home page and uh, there's a list of references there's the cancer doula work with me page so there's a there's a variety of stuff there i also have a facebook page called hacking chemo and people can join me there if they like i post fairly regularly that's about the only thing i do in terms of so, social media Maybe you can send me that link and we'll make sure your website and the Facebook page are in the show notes. Absolutely, I will. Great. Listeners, if you have comments on today's show, you can leave them where you're listening or we can be found at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher. Most of the places a person would listen to podcasts. Of course, there's always the website 
to boomerwomen.com to leave your comments. Click the Join the Conversation tab. Leave stars and reviews as they help us grow. Hit the subscribe or follow button before you go, and then you'll be notified about future interviews with more of my great guests. And share this episode with two friends who might want or need to dig a little deeper into what Martha's shared with us today. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or know someone who would, there's an application form at the website too. I have browsed around Martha's website. There is a ton of great information there. And I really recommend if you are interested in cleaning up your diet or making it more body friendly, future friendly is might be a a good term. Definitely check that out and uh, click all the links because there's a lot of good stuff there. Just before we close, I think you've also got a site with a lot of medical references. Is it PubMed or something? There is an evidence page on my website that links to a lot of PubMed articles and stuff. And there's a whole uh, list of references in the back of the book as well. There you go. You can go and prove to yourself that it's all good. Martha Tettenborn, thank you so much for being my guest on Two Boomer Women today. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. It's been so interesting. Have a great rest of week. You too. You too.